All right, good evening. Glad you're here tonight, whether you're here in the auditorium or those of you at home. Thank you for tuning in uh, via our website. And those of you in the parking lot, thank you for setting your radios to Mono 6.3 and not some alternative station while you're here. Uh, so we're glad to have you on board as well. If you want to open your Bibles, we are going to be in Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 tonight. I'm not sure how it's going to happen, um, but we're going to we're going to we're going to be going very quickly tonight. Um, and so, if you want the slides emailed to you, those of you in the parking lot already have the outline. Uh, let me know and I'll make sure you get it. Let's have a moment of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started in Genesis, the fourth chapter. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the rich blessings that come as a result of you, your Son, the Holy Spirit the word that's been delivered to us that we can read and understand. Bless our time together tonight in the study of this first book of the Old Testament. And we pray your blessings on all those who are learning tonight from the youngest to the oldest. And bless us as we try to do what you've asked us to do. In Jesus we pray, amen. All right, again, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, we are studying Genesis, the seed, the stories, the salvation. Last week we talked about the creation. We talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we concluded by talking about Adam and Eve getting banished from the garden as a result of their sinful choices. So tonight we begin in Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, uh, the first half of it is the story of two individuals. Who are they? Cain and Abel. And we know that one pleased the Lord. We know that one was displeasing to the Lord. So we're going to talk just briefly about the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. Cain, Cain it's always easier to remember, Abel was more able to please God, if you get them mixed up, which was which. Um, but in verse uh, 3, it says, In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and verse 4, transition, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So there are a number of different perspectives or uh, reasons why we understand why one was more pleasing to God than the other. Cain displeased the Lord. Abel was pleasing to the Lord. Uh, quite frequently, we go to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to reference Hebrews chapter 11 uh, probably twice tonight. But Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 is a relatively straightforward statement. This is where we see that Abel, even though he be dead, uh, speaks from the dead. And he said, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it being dead still speaks. So there's, again, we got to kind of fill in some blanks here and use the rest of the Old Testament to kind of understand that while there were sacrifices of the ground, uh, of the harvest that were to be made to God, we know that the prized possession was the fat. We know that we, the understanding of a livestock animal, of a clean animal, was necessary in order to please God. And that seems to be kind of why this was more pleasing than it was on the part of Cain. One seems to be made through faith and giving the best. 
And kind of written in the lines there is a choice where he wasn't giving his best or certainly was not the appropriate attitude. Hebrews chapter 11 helps shed some light on that as well. Uh, God comes to Cain and he asks him a series of two questions separated by about three or four verses. Question number one was, why are you angry? Now, this, this is something that sometimes we lose track of, the timetable here. This is a question that was asked prior to his taking the life of his brother, right? So he comes to him, and he follows it up with kind of a, a, a statement, an elliptical statement. He says, why are you angry? Do you not know that what blanks at the blank? Remember what he said? Sin crouches or lies at the door. The idea being that you've already done something to displease me. Now you run the risk of displeasing me more or magnifying it. And then isn't that true about sin, that sin has a way of magnifying itself in the sense that we do one thing wrong, it makes it easier to do the next thing wrong, and then it's easier to do the next thing wrong. If we just kind of stop right where we need to, um, we uh, are able to do so. What's the second question that God asks of Cain in chapter 4? Because I, I, I count two questions. One is, uh, why are you angry? What's the second question? Why is your devil called? Well, you know, actually, I guess there's three, three or four questions here. Where is your brother? Where is your brother? Yes. I, I, why is why your countenance fallen? Why are you looking so downfallen? Where is your brother after he had taken his life? Um, brothers and sisters typically fight with one another, but we don't typically raise it to this uh, standard, right? Um, you know, I had four siblings, and we all got along splendidly over the course of our uh, 15 years growing up together. No, that's not true. We, we fall like every other group of siblings. But where is your brother? Then, when you get down to around chapter 4, verse 11, let's read verse 11. He says, now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Notice the phrase earth. Notice the word ground. Interesting that there's probably something to be said for this. Cain sacrificed from the ground. It is now the ground that is uh, receiving a curse as a part of his sacrifice. And Cain's reaction is, is I cannot bear this. It is too much. And Cain is then fearful. What's he, what's he seemingly fearful of going forward? The repercussions of his... Yeah, he, he, there are serious consequences to what he's done. He goes so far as to say, they're going to, if they find me, they're going to kill me. So a direct curse on Cain. This is the first time that God renders a direct curse on a person. You could say, well, he, he cursed Adam and Eve, and I, and I understand that, but in terms of the terminology, the language that is being used, this is, remember Genesis is a book of firsts. So we're looking at the first lie, we're looking at the first temptation, the first sin, all the different firsts in the book of Genesis. Here's a direct curse on Cain, the first of those. So Cain's future is to go to the land of Nod. And there, the, the word nod seems to literally mean a land of wandering. So whether there was a place called nod or whether he was just going to a place of nodding where he was going to wander around. 
is, is the Bible doesn't say, but clearly he is sent off to go someplace else. But at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, there is a detail that really throws some people for a loop, um, and that is Cain ends up finding what? What's he, or, or, or who? I gave it away. He finds a wife, right? So he finds a wife, uh, presumably someone of his descendant family. Some have conjectured that it could be a sister. Uh, we know Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, says that Adam uh, begot, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So we know that he just didn't have three children, uh, that he and Eve did not have just simply three children. They had at least five children, based on the math and the way that it's worded, if you, if you can understand the plurality of Hebrew words. Okay, so they had a lot of children, most likely, because back then he had lots of children. And the other thing that uh, Dan and I were talking about either Sunday or Wednesday is that in the first six to ten chapters of Genesis, you are blowing through hundreds, thousands of years in the course of just a few chapters. And then all of a sudden, once you get later in Genesis and then Exodus, things slow down dramatically. So the story slows down dramatically, and what happens to the lifespan of people? It slows down rapidly as well. It goes from 800, 900 years to settle at around 600, and then it ends up in the 300s, and then it ends up at around 120 as being kind of the basis. Um, okay, let's go on to the last part of Chapter 4, and uh, I probably won't ask for a lot of comments tonight just because we have so much going on. Uh, if you do have those things, uh, write them down. Uh, email me, text me, call me. Uh, Whatever you want to do, and we'll talk about those things. But let's go on to chapter 4, the last half of chapter 4. We are introduced to a man by the name of Lamech. And it says that Lamech, in verse 19, took for himself two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the second was Zillah. And it's interesting that very rarely at this point in Hebrew literature are women named. Uh, but God chose to name these two women, ironically, or interesting, as I kind of hinted at last week, Lamech is the first recorded polygamist. Uh, and we know that back in Genesis chapter 2, that even though it wasn't explicitly written, it's understood that a man and a woman were to be married for life, especially when you shade on that Matthew chapter 19, that from the beginning it was not so that divorce could be for any cause, as was being asked in Matthew 19 verses 1, 2, and 3. And so it seems as if, uh, it, I think we can all be in agreement that God wants one man, one woman. That's been kind of a universal thing. Now we're going to get into that a little bit later because we have to deal with Abraham, right? And we have to uh, kind of figure out how that all works. But that's for a couple weeks from now. Um, they have a third child. Everyone knows what the third child's name is. What's the third child's name? And his name was? Seth. Seth is the name, uh, and the meaning of Seth's name is literally a appointed or, parentheses, a replacement. Um, and this goes back to the very first slide, the idea of the stories, the salvation. What was the third S? The seed. And so the child's not going to come from Abel. The child is... Capital C child is not going to come from Cain. 
So he's got to come from somewhere, and of course he comes from Seth. And I'm talking about the child, the one through whom salvation is going to flow, the seed of all mankind. The, the, the seed of God, the seed of Adam and Eve that ultimately saves us. Um, one other little thing here in chapter 4, verse 26. As for Seth, to him also a son was born, named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. The first time that that phrase is used, as I, as I recall. Uh, but note, if you would, that when we think about people calling on God, we think about people like Moses. We think about people like Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. It goes back even before then. And it starts here uh, with, with Seth. Okay, let's go ahead to chapter 5. We're going to spend half the time on chapter 5. Chapter 5 is important, even if it has uh, genealogy in it. Let's just hit some highlights. Um, interesting, in verse 1, in the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. There is that phrase repeated or used yet again in the image of man or in the likeness of God. That phrase is used yet again here in chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look at three characters. It's the three that are the most famous. Uh, one of those is Enoch. Uh, what was unique about Enoch in a couple of words? He, he did not. He walked with God is the phrase that was used. And it's, it seems universal that based on this passage and understood and on Hebrews chapter 11 verses 5 and 6 that he did not experience death in the similar way that you and I experience it. Uh, who is the oldest recorded man in the Bible? If you're ever on Jeopardy, it's, and that is, that is the answer, and you've got to say, who was Methuselah? It's not that he was the oldest man. Uh, you can make the argument that Enoch was older than him, uh, but you get my point, is that Methuselah, 969 years, is the oldest of the individuals named uh, here in the genealogy or the family of Adam. And then where we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight is on Noah. Uh, note his name's meaning is referenced. Uh, if you go back down to verse, uh, well, I didn't write down my verse. Where's his, where's his, um, verse, verse 29. Thank you very much. He called his name Noah saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed there in verse 20, I put it up there. I saw that up there. The only character in chapter 5 wherein this occurs. So that was kind of interesting. You have a lot of names in chapter 5, and the Bible likes to give names for various reasons, and there's a whole study on genealogies. Uh, I've got a book that goes through pages of explaining genealogies, and it's very interesting, but it's a little bit tedious. Maybe it's just because I'm not that smart, so it takes me a while to, to pick up on it. Uh, but it's interesting that in this genealogy here, the only person whose name is referenced in terms of his pure meaning or why he's called that was Noah. So we're going to spend the rest of our time on Noah starting in chapter 6. Chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, those four chapters are the story of the fall of man in terms of universal fall, uh, the flood, the deluge, the what happens after, and then uh, we'll end with... Uh, some uncomfortable things about Noah. Chapter 6. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that, verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, they took wives for themselves and of all whom they chose. 
So it seems as if here uh, that the sons of God and the daughters of men are the respective descendants of Seth and Cain. I should have put arrows up there uh, that sons of God belong to Seth and daughters of men belong to Cain. We know that one of the universal teachings in the Old Testament was, well, not just the Old Testament, but New Testament, is exercising caution who you choose to marry because of the influence of pagan wives or pagan men and that you must keep things pure. And we see here a result of that intermixing of people who were dedicated to God, who were, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, or chapter 4, verse 26, calling on the name of the Lord under the lineage of Seth, and presumably those who weren't interested in the things of the Lord were the people of Cain. Um, the Bible says here in verse 4 that there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. Thought that that was kind of interesting. We know that there were giants. We know that there were gigantic people. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17 uh, helps us understand the most famous or infamous of those. Uh, a man who was what? Eight and a half, nine feet tall, if I remember the specifications correctly as they translate into our measurements, but a very huge, huge man, um, Goliath. Uh, so it could be that. It is interesting, and I came across this, that the literal word for giant here is the same word in Hebrew that you get the word tyrant. So some have suggested that rather than it being a physical giant, it was more uh, a literal giant, it was more of a figurative giant. The idea of people who were ruling and people who were uh, disobeying God. Either way, God's will is still going to be done, and that doesn't change anything. Verse 6 is a verse that I mentioned last week that when I was in college, we had to read some biblical text as a part of a liberal arts, as part of uh, the cultural heritage of people. Um, verse 6, it says, in the New King James, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Where it says that the Lord was sorry, the King James Version says it repented the Lord. Anybody have anything different than one of those two? Probably not. See, probably one of those two. Um, the ASV probably has repented the Lord. I didn't look at it. But most more, the newer translations have it that the Lord was sorry. This kind of goes back to the, to the very good question that Nathan brought up last week at kind of near the end. And we're going to kind of answer that. We answered it already, but let's answer it again. And that is we have to appreciate that God did not put Adam and Eve in the garden and then wring his hands and say, good, I got them where I want them. Now they're going to mess up. And that's part of my plan. Uh, he wanted Adam and Eve to succeed. Uh, he wanted the people in Noah's time to succeed. But the point that we made last week and that we need to always make uh, whenever we talk about this, when we get to the study of Exodus and we're talking about Pharaoh and the Lord hardened his heart, is that men and women always have those two very important words, and that is free will. They always have free will. Um, what's going to go on the ark besides the eight human beings? A bunch of animals, right? So a bunch of animals. And this is something that a lot of times uh, people, not a lot of times, almost universally people get this wrong. That, that, that how, many, how many go on? Trick question, right? You know, two and two, a male and a female. Well, that's not absolutely true, right? Because there were two 
of what type of animals? Clean. And seven of the unclean, right? So animals on the ark. Here's the first time that we have anything referenced about clean or unclean. And um, there's all kinds of different analyzations about how they fit on the ark. Uh, and you can go to an ark exhibit uh, somewhere in the country and see what it looks like to scale. I mean, it's a huge, huge, huge thing. I'm not seeing the person, but I've seen pictures of it. Uh, but uh, certainly... It was an ark that God asked Noah to prepare. Now, kind of an aside here. Is, uh, did I say something wrong? I did have it backwards. Well, as soon as I said that, I thought, that doesn't sound right. Be uh, okay, see, I, I just said to see if you're paying attention. So those of you in your cars, are you paying attention? All right, seven clean, two unclean, right? And I, I thought one of the points that I wanted to make is you've got to have more clean if you're going to have sacrifices, right, going forward. That's another kind of a part of the puzzle that has to be put there. Okay, thank you. So I saw puzzled looks, and I, do, and I appreciate puzzled looks because uh, next time just hold up a sign and say, Preacher, you're wrong. <laughs> okay, no, don't do that. That's, that can throw me off. Okay. All right, so let's move on to chapter 7 because we are now halfway through our time together. I know we're, I said we're going to go fast. If you want the slides, I'm happy to give them to you. Uh, let's go on to Genesis chapter 7, which is, oops, too many pages. In my Bible, which has little uh, subheadings, it's called the Great Flood. And certainly it was a great flood. Noah did all that God commanded. We could dwell the rest of our time just on chapter 7, verse 5, where it says, Noah did according to all the Lord commanded him. What does that involve? It involves not just partial obedience. It involves complete obedience. It involves obedience even in spite of people who uh, might make fun of you. Uh, it involves obedience in spite of it not making sense. Because I'm not sure that Noah knew every part of God's plan as it was going to come to fulfillment. Sometimes we have to do what God wants us to do, even when it doesn't make full sense to us. The great thing about life is the older we get, typically, though not always, we're able to look back and say, now it made sense why uh, that happened. Now it made sense why God wanted that for me. Now it makes sense why I was tested in that particular way. Um, sometimes we don't get that in this life. And I, am a, I, I don't know if we'll know that in heaven or not, but it won't matter at that point, right? Uh, but we will know what we need to know at that point. Okay, verse 13 tells us on the very same day, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. So in a world wherein Lamech and others were already, because Lamech probably wasn't the only polygamist. I think it'd be naive to say that. Here you have uh, Noah having one wife. You have his three sons, each having uh, one wife. And so uh, that brings us to the family of eight, which is, of course, referenced in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Some have liked to say, well, there was a flood, but it wasn't an entire deluge. It wasn't a world captivating flood because that requires belief in something supernatural. Well, uh, if you look at verse 19, it says the waters prevailed. Let's go to verse 18. Increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. So again, uh, we believe that Adam and Eve were real, 
We believe that Satan is real. We believe in six days of creation. We believe that there was a worldwide flood and that it destroyed everything in its path. Um, and that that was God's design. Uh, and then drop down to verse 23. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing, and birds of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained, or remained alive. So you have total earth destruction, and then you have what you could call a restart. We're going to end with that tonight. So just hold that little restart um, concept in your mind for just another 15 minutes or so. Uh, how many days did the waters prevail? You drop down one verse and you see 150 days. So it works out to be five months, give or take a day or two. So this was, it was so, so to say, well, they were only in the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, that would be incorrect, right? Uh, they were in the ark for a long period of time. And uh, again, there's these people that really get into how in the world, did, I don't know. <laughs> God provided is how it happened. And he made it happen. He made it happen that the animals survived and that they had enough food and that they had enough water and that and probably water was not a scarcity, right? Um, I don't know if they had, I don't know if, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to guess. God provided as he always does. Chapter 8 is a beautiful beginning. Verse 1, it says, Then God remembered Noah. I like that. That's, that's really neat. Uh, remember, we just finished our study of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah continually said, Lord, remember me for good. And God says, I remember Noah. Now, that remembering Noah uh, is not the same thing as us remembering. Oh, I remember now I was supposed to go to the store. No, that's not what this is going on here. God never forgot Noah. It's just that it's, it's, a, it's a kind of figurative way of saying the Lord never forgot, but he remembered by the grace of Noah the good that he had done and the, um, the, the, the kindness towards God that Noah had shown. Two birds are mentioned, the first two birds ever mentioned. They are the raven and a dove, Right? So we see a raven that is sent out. Uh, again, there's, there's meanings of this and textual colors and stuff that you could get into. Uh, a raven probably, uh, not probably, a raven is a stronger uh, bird that has the capacity to go out and to fly for a longer period of time by its design, whereas a dove is more delicate. A dove and an olive branch is now a kind of universal uh, picture of peace or tranquility or calmness uh, because of what the dove does. And then it brings us down to, uh, let's go and read a couple of those verses here. Uh, verse 11, the dove came to him in the evening, this is chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days, sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So verse 12, again, okay, that means the dove found some place to rest and to make uh, the new home for that particular bird. Uh, verse 15, God spoke to Noah and he says, 
Go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you. Bring with you every living thing, all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle, every creepy thing, so that they may abound on the earth, be fruitful, and multiply on the earth. So uh, this is what you could call a new creation. So even though God isn't recreating in chapters 1, he isn't replicating chapter 1, God is, by chapter 8, fulfilling all of his will in repopulating the earth, not just with people, although he only has eight at this point, but with animals uh, to repopulate the earth. Um, what does Noah do? What's the first thing that Noah seems to do? After he, at, when he gets off the ark. He builds an altar, right? So the first thing that Noah chooses to do is to focus himself on God. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that more here in just a second here. But I want to talk about the altar for just a moment. Um, Noah's priority going back to God's promise. And there are lots of different reasons why Noah built this altar and why he worshiped God in this way. But let me suggest to you just two purposes here very quickly. Number one is just pure thankfulness to God. Uh, incidentally, first altar ever built, first altar ever referenced here in Genesis chapter 8. Uh, so he's thankful to God, but he's also worshiping God. And you think about that, what do we do when we come to worship God? What is our living sacrifice about? It is in part saying thank you, God, for being kind to us, and to praise you, God, for we are offering ourselves before you. Uh, we sometimes say the fruit of our lips is our praise. Our praise is going to be the fruit unto you that we are sacrificing to you. So there's all kinds of things that we can uh, kind of make application from there. I said I wasn't going to ask for any, any comments, but uh, we've got 15 and a half minutes left, and I've got one chapter to cover, so I think we have time for any, anybody have anything you want to say? I know we've gone fast. Anything you want to add at this point? Uh, Nathan's over here. Anybody else? Uh, microphone's on its way. And then we're going to get into chapter 9, and then um, we'll go from there. Yes, Brother Nathan. I think one, one thing that stood out to me, even going back in, into um, chapter 4 and even even on into chapter, the first couple chapters, even in, into now, is throughout all of this, you don't see... It stated where God gave them specific instructions like the sacrifices and stuff like that. Even go back to Cain and Abel. Mm -hmm. Abel, like, how did they know what to offer? They knew, evidently, it was stated to them, although we didn't see that, and there was a lot of time transpired in between all those cases. So we That's a good we point. see evidence that evidently God throughout time had made it known to them what his expectations of them were. Absolutely. They weren't just trying, you know, grasping for straws and that's a really good observation. Whim of feeling that we're I, think, given instruction. I think Hebrews 11 helps us understand that even more. So Nathan uh, makes a really good point. God does not say, hey, I want you to do what I want you to do. And we say, okay, I'll do what you want me to do. What do you want me to do? He says, yes. <laughs> Just how unfair would that be? Um, she says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you that information. So apparently somewhere uh, that information had been, been given. And remember, and that goes back to the point that we made early on, is that we are flying through hundreds of years of history 
in these verses, thousands of years, really. Um, and, and yes, we do believe, going back to last week, we're a little bit odd because of our belief uh, in the literal account of Genesis. We believe in an earth that is relatively young. And, you know, people talk about four and a half billion, 12 billion, whatever the years are. I don't know what you believe the earth is, but it, it's, it's less than that, a lot less. Uh, and I think we kind of universally agree on that as, as people of faith. Um, okay, let's go ahead to chapter 9. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Michael, for handling that. Uh, let's spend our last 12 minutes in chapter 9, which is um, consequential, difficult, challenging, and a little bit disappointing. Or some, may, some might say a lot disappointing. Uh, because you've had this beautiful picture, the dove, the ark landing, people coming out, the animals walking out in the savannah. It's like Lion King almost. You know I, mean? I mean, just a beautiful picture. And then chapter 9, second half, smacks you in the face. All right. Before we get to that, let's talk about chapter 9. It starts with, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We've heard that before. Remember at the very beginning, God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now we got to, again, this whole restart process, which we'll look at in a chart here in just a moment. Um, for the first time, God makes a prohibition against what in the first three to four verses of chapter 9, five verses of chapter 9? Do not eat what? Don't eat blood, right? So he talks about blood of animals and he talks about blood of men. Um, think about that for a second. I thought about it in, in this vein that animals or the prohibition of eating certain animals or blood is a foreshadow of a future command. Uh, it's getting us ready for a different, I don't want to use the word yet, but I'm going to say covenant because I wanted to save that word for just a minute. Um, but Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 is a clear passage that talks about that which you can and that which you cannot eat if you are a Hebrew or a Jew uh, following the law of God. It's also a preview. Think about this. Even though we've already seen life taken in Genesis 4, now it's being written, it's being codified that you cannot just go and take someone else's life. You cannot shed someone else's blood. Uh, and so it's a foreshadow of one of the primary Ten Commandments given many years later in Exodus chapter 20. Um, here in verse uh, 9, As for me, behold, I, God, establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Verse 11, Thus I shall establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off for the waters. Verse 12, This is the sign of the covenant. Verse 13, sign of the covenant. Verse 15, remember my covenant. Apparently there's something about the covenant here that's very important. And usually, we were just talking about this yesterday, right? Usually we think of two covenants, right? We think of the old, we think of the new. We think of Mosaic law, we think of Exodus 20 through the rest of uh, Deuteronomy. We think of the prophets fulfilling that and, and, and teaching. And then we think about the new covenant, 
But the Bible is filled with other covenants wherein God has had a relationship with man and has asked something of them. This is, incidentally, the second time the word covenant is used. The first time is back in chapter 6, and we just flew over it. Um, but if you go back and find chapter 6, we'll award bonus points to whoever can find that the quickest next time. Um, but a covenant is this important agreement between parties. Uh, and I like verse 15 where God says, I will remember. So this is the second time that God talks about remembering. The first time is God remembered Noah. Now he says, I will remember my covenant with you. Uh, and of course, we're not going to take time to get into this, but everyone knows the sign of that covenant of the promise that God would never destroy the world again through a flood in its entirety is the existence of the of the, of the, of the rainbow. Yeah. All right. Very good. Okay. Let's go ahead then and spend the rest of our time in the second half of chapter nine. We've got about eight minutes left. And um, I, I, I debated what, what I was going to say. Um, what do you call this? And I, I came up with this. I came up with just simply poor judgment. Multiply. <laughs> of both Noah and of Ham. So let's look at the text here in chapter 9. It says that, uh, verse 19, These three were the sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth. Or Shem, Ham, Japheth is the order he puts them in verse 18 from whom the whole earth was populated. Verse 20. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from the wine, knew what his younger son had done to him, said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. But blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge, uh, enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be to his servant. And may Canaan be his servant. All right. Um, there are a lot of things that we can say about this. Uh, but let's just say a couple of things. Number one, even superheroes of faith uh, mess up. That's one of the frustrating things about Genesis, and for that matter, the entire Bible, is you look at these great men and women, and they still mess up. I have a sermon uh, that, I, that I've preached before. I'll, maybe I'll preach it sometime. Uh, but the premise of it is Hebrews 11, flipping it upside down. And looking, Hebrews 11 is a list of all these great characters. And in the sermon I go through and, and my point is, is, let's look at all the things they got wrong. But yet they are still men of faith. Which is hope for us that even in spite of not being a superhero of faith, like these great guys and, and, and women, uh, I can still be pleasing to God. Not with continual disobedience, don't misquote me but with a choice to make things right. I can have past uh, ugliness in my life like I talked about Sunday evening in Matthew chapter 11. Um, the other thing is that sin leads to sin. So you have Noah's uh, poor choice of uh, action, which then set up Ham. When we 
uh, do wrong, it leads others to do wrong or potentially to do wrong. So there's yet another application that comes from this. And then, this is interesting, he says, cursed be Canaan. Um, anything strike you about that? We, we talked, this is guess what Leland's thinking. Um, he did not say cursed be Ham, right? He said cursed be Canaan. Why? We'll ask God when we get there. However, um, and that's one of the things is why not Ham? I would suggest perhaps it goes back to verse 1 of chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says that God blessed Noah, God blessed Shem, Japheth, and Ham. It doesn't say that. It says he blessed his sons. So maybe Noah's not in the position to be able to curse his son, but he can place a curse on his son's son and those that would be there. The other thing is, what do we know about the Canaanites? The Canaanites were a very wicked people. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's certain things that I can say in an adult class that I can't say when their children are present. But one of the ways that they were very sinful was in a very sexually deviant ways of worshiping God and, and prostitute worship. Uh, and so those are things that are just completely um, ugly in multiple ways. And so, no wonder why curse became. Look at the, the choices that they ended up making. Okay, now this next thing may be frustrating because I'm not sure. I haven't looked on this big screen how it's going to appear, but we've got five minutes here, so you might be able to see. If not, um, I have a few extra paper copies somewhere, and I can also email this to you. But this is a chart that I copied. I, I, I massaged it a little bit, but I took it, I'm not smart enough to come up with this. Uh, but I thought, that's kind of interesting. So I took what someone else did, and I put it into a different chart of my own. So you work from upper left. For those of you in the, in the parking lot, it's the last piece of paper you have. Uh, you work from the upper left down, then come across the bottom where there's one big box that says nearly universal death. And then the arrow works itself back up on the right side. And so if you look at that, what happens? The earth is ruined by water. God informs Noah of destruction. They enter the ark. The ark is closed. The waters rise. And the earth is cleansed. And then we start working back up. The waters recede as opposed to rising. The ark is opened as opposed to being closed. The exit of the ark happens as opposed to the entrance of the ark. Uh, God says, I'm going to tell you about renewal as opposed to telling you about destruction. And then God says, I will never again ruin the earth by water in a, in a, in a, a universal deluge. I thought that's kind of neat. Uh, and think about it from this perspective. The whole purpose of patterns in Genesis, uh, which is a study in and of itself, is to appreciate that it makes it a little easier to remember for people who can't read or don't have books. So the story of Genesis was going to be very important for early followers of God. And so by putting patterns in and, and putting these little arrows in, even though that's not something that maybe Noah completely understood, uh, the Holy Spirit seems to want us to get out of it, perhaps. All right. In our final couple of minutes here, uh, we always want to end, I promise to always end with at least three observations. Number one, there's four of them for tonight. There are always consequences of sin. Always, 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 always. 
even if we get away with sin, we still have to bear the guilt or we may have caused harm to someone else. Cain, Lamech, Noah, Ham, all sin and bad things happen to other people. Secondly, it's in our capacity to cause the Lord sorrow or to cause him joy. We can make God happy or we can make him sad. And that's not something that we want, to make him sad. Thirdly, God never forgets his chosen men and women. Uh, he remembers them. And then fourthly and finally, God is always a God of covenants. More about that as we get into the story of Abraham in the next few weeks. So, um, anybody have anything in the last 30 seconds that you want to say? And I'll repeat it real quickly. I appreciate your time tonight. Um, Seriously, let me know, and I'll give you whatever you want of the material that I'm using. We'll go ahead and stop there and let the uh, younger people come in, and we'll go from there. Thank you all.